First Peter Bible Study, Part 4, Prelude from the Prophets, for lay leaders and deacons to conduct after the Sunday service or during a midweek Bible study session. Hear the word of our Lord from First Peter, Chapter 1, verses 10 through 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you, in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, going off of the more casual Bible study format for the audio here, I do want to encourage people to continue taking a look at the Church Resources tab at verylutheran.biz to get some of the more detail-oriented things. But let's get into it. We talked last week about how 1 Peter was written. What's the structure and the pattern of writing? And I believe that St. Peter loosely patterns the biggest bulk of his epistle off of Hebrew poetic structure. There are loose parallelisms that build on each other, and these parallelisms say, Here is what Christ did for you. Here is how you must live for Christ. And this all surrounds a kind of chiastic center in chapter 2 in which St. Peter teaches us his central proposition. Christ saving us means that we have a new identity that we did not have before being saved. Something has changed in the fundamental way you and I approach and think about and treat our religious life. Jesus doesn't just do something for you when he saves you. He also does something to you. Now, to introduce this theme, though, and these ideas, we have the initial praise, or what I call the purpose statement, in 1 Peter 1, 1 through 9. But now, we want to talk about the advantage that the Christian has over Old Testament saints, and particularly the prophets of the Old Testament. There's a contrast being set up here that isn't one about ontological superiority of one group over the other. We are not better human beings than the Old Testament saints, and we're not trying to say that we're better people than, say, Isaiah. But on the flip side, he's not lecturing us with today's passage about how we have to have a better attitude since previous saints didn't have what we have, namely the complete specified gospel where we know who, what, when, where, and why concerning the person and work of Christ Jesus. He's not the angry mom telling the child who doesn't want to eat his carrots you know, there are starving children elsewhere, you should be grateful. 
He's not trying to make you feel bad. That would be a category error in the law and gospel distinction. Now, going off script here, let's talk about that for a moment. The law is what God requires of you. It is his eternal will. And there are three uses for the law. The first use being the reduction of wickedness, sin, and evil in the world. It terrifies people, and so we are less likely to ruin or destroy God's creation on account of that. And God executes the ministry of the first use of the law, typically with civic government. Do not steal, you will be punished. The second use of the law, which preachers prefer to talk about, is, well, showing you who you really are in terms of your sin. We call the second use of the law the mirror. The mirror of the law tells you that you are a bad person who deserves hell on account of your sins. If you ever ask, how am I doing in my walk with God, and you really think about, say, what the Ten Commandments are telling you, you're going to come up short every single time. The second use of the law says you and I are sinners in need of a savior, and the law will always accuse us concerning our failures. Then there is the third use of the law, when we understand that we have divine pardon for our sins and the promise of eternal life through Christ's atoning work on the cross, the law no longer is an enemy to us. Instead, it's a friend, a guide, something that stands beside us and helps us to walk in Christ's ways. This is why Lutherans, we don't abolish the Ten Commandments. Instead, we teach it and we urge people to follow it. But then there's the matter of the gospel, where God gives us unilateral promises, and he invites us to trust in Christ our Savior for all sorts of benefits, starting with the forgiveness of our sins, going to justification by faith, understanding that we have eternal life in Christ Jesus. Whenever God gives a promise of grace that does not depend on your merit, we're talking about gospel. And when we read passages like 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 10-12, through 12, we want to ask ourselves, is he speaking with the voice of law in the first, second, or third use? Or is he speaking about the gospel and things related to the gospel? Here, he's talking gospel. St. Peter here is celebrating and highlighting the privilege granted to Christians today. Rather than lecturing us, rather than uh, trying to posit something that isn't there. When we do hermeneutics, when we interpret the scriptures, we have to ask, what voice is God speaking with through the text? Here, namely, it's gospel. So we move on to verse 10 and 11. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating 
when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. By salvation, in concerning this salvation, we're talking about the atoning work of Christ on the cross and his resurrection. But with that, there's a bit of confusion, because St. Peter said, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours. Now, does this mean that the prophets weren't saved? That God's grace and salvation only belongs to people in the New Testament era? Heaven forbid. The prophets, like all saints, were saved by God's grace through faith in Christ, who was to come. Hebrews chapter 11 makes that very clear. But the specific grace that was to belong to us is the full revelation of the gospel. They knew that one day there would be a Messiah, a Savior. There's been that promise since Genesis 3 verse 15. But they didn't know who exactly this would be, how long everybody would have to wait, when that would happen, etc. God, in his grace, has given us those details. We have a much more concrete picture of the gospel, more to hold on to, so to speak, than the ancient prophets. Now, they inquired about who would suffer, which tells us that they knew the Christ would suffer. And they said that there was glory, too. They inquired about this and searched for it. So they knew, and we should read the Old Testament with this in mind, that there would be a Savior and a Messiah who would suffer for all of humanity, but also subsequently receive glory. This was the gospel that they had to hold on to. Now, the passage isn't about this, but I can't help but bring it up. St. Peter says that the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ. Occasionally you will hear our Eastern Orthodox friends rejecting the so-called filioque clause from the Nicene Creed. They believe that the Roman Catholic Church, under the papacy, unilaterally changed the creed, which is therefore a change of the faith, when they said that the Holy Spirit proceeds from both the Father and the Son. But in terms of how the Godhead works, Scripture attests that the filioque is true. The Holy Spirit is not the Spirit of Christ, unless the Holy Spirit also proceeds from Christ. And we understand from the Gospel of St. John that the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. This is simply doctrinally true according to the witness of Scripture. There is no reason to call the Holy Spirit the Spirit of Christ if he does not proceed from Christ. Whether or not the papacy was justified in unilaterally changing a line in the creed with the addition of the filioque clause doesn't really matter if it is true. You can call it a process crime, but if it is true, then it is not a sin per scripture to confess it in the creed. If there was some process crime or something like that, I would say that's not really a good cause for a massive great schism. 
and we Lutherans being Western Christendom, we are going to confess a Western doctrine that is understood from Holy Scripture. But ultimately, this passage is not about that. It is about the prophets who held on to Christ according to the message given to them by the Spirit of Christ. Now, if the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, he is going to witness to Christ. And Revelation 19.10 and elsewhere will tell us that the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of the prophets. So also here is the rote fact that the Bible is about Jesus. <laughs> the prophets witnessed according to what the Holy Spirit was saying, and the Holy Spirit doesn't like to talk about himself very much. He prefers to point us to Jesus, our Savior. This introduces the Christological or Christocentric principle of Scripture that all of it will be pointing to our Savior, ultimately, anyway. Now, verse 12 says, It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preached the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, when any passage of scripture says, for you, this is for you, this is God doing something for you, that is a matter of gospel. 99% of the time, this is a gracious act by God, so we understand from these verses that this is a matter of gospel. You could say that the entirety of 1 Peter is about the interaction between the gospel and the third use of the law, what we do and how we live, how our conduct is guided by the fact that Christ has done something for us and to us. Now our obedience to God's law is motivated by being saved. The Christians should just assume that they are saved and rejoice in it. But it is also something to keep in mind that prophecy is not always meant for the people that receive prophecy at first. When Isaiah preaches about the virgin birth or the suffering servant who is pierced for our transgressions, He's not preaching that and hearing that message for his generation. Those who would understand it fully are those who receive the fullness of the gospel. Now, of course, Isaiah and his contemporaries held on to these promises, but their fulfillment is ultimately for you and I. We reap the benefits of the struggles of the Old Testament saints and the prophets. Things revealed to us by them, but confirmed and fulfilled by Christ on the cross and with the empty tomb, so that we can have a fuller and more solid faith. I would say this verse is pretty self-explanatory and something that we should rejoice in. God is for you. So he sent prophets in ancient times to be for you. And then this message, after the fulfillment of these prophecies, is carried by the apostles and the evangelists who are for you 
for the salvation of your soul. It is interesting, though, that he says these are things into which angels long to look, meaning angels themselves, those who have seen God face to face, this species of creature that we don't know much about, but their existence teaches us something about God. Theologians have before called them mirrors of God's glory meaning that in a sense an angel who serves God is something of a reflection of him, right? They're not divine creatures, but their very existence teaches us about God in various ways. I can't get into it now, but maybe we'll do a VLL on the nature of angels. But they are servants for you. They are ministers for you on behalf of God who commands them and leads them in the way. But they are not all-knowing, and they don't know all secrets. They certainly know more than we do in terms of divine matters, but even this was kept from them because God wanted a plan of salvation to play out in a certain way. The angels yearn to know what was revealed to us. Now, I don't know about you, but that means that we are privileged as believers that the mighty angels themselves lack a lot of the information and revelation that was given to us. That's a cause for rejoicing. Again, this is a gospel matter that St. Peter would say, this is how special the gospel is for you, that the prophets wrote their prophecies down for us, the ones who would receive the fullness of the gospel, verifying it, so to speak, by ancient writ. And even angels who were there to help fight God's battles and there to protect believers and to serve mankind at God's behest, here they are wishing that they would know about it too, and we are the ones to receive it first. We praise the Lord for this. And in the next recording on First Peter, after the Christmas break, of course, we will get into even more good news and what that means for us. But until then, our Lord bless you and keep you. Amen and amen.